kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's Monday night. It's a little bit after six, and welcome to another edition of Auntie Nanny. Uh, with me tonight is the best producer money can't buy, which is good because I don't really pay him anything. Hi, Barry. How's it going? Oh, I'm doing good. Yeah. Um. So it's been kind of an interesting week again. <laughs> Every week is interesting. Um. So Windows 10 came out. yeah so i haven't been able to upgrade yet not even really sure i want to i mean i probably should um you can't force an update well i'm sure i can i'm 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 hesitant just because of some of the issues it um brings with it because once you have it on your machine um, that's how everybody else gets their updates. It's, it, uh, it steals your bandwidth. It's like a torrent, kind of, well, is my understanding. Only certain parts of it. Right, but still, I like my bandwidth. I pay a lot for my bandwidth. I'm, I'm, I'm willing to wait to steal somebody else's bandwidth to get my update. I'm good with that. Um, but... Samantha uh, Philip was, is asking, does it have new stuff to learn? No, not really. Apart from how to turn off all the privacy options, but, you know. That's only four pages of no. <laughs> Thirteen pages. Thirteen mm. pages. Oh, I'm sorry. That's only four yes checkboxes and yeah. 30 pages of no. Yeah. So, that's good. <laughs> so, ask um, you some of it when you're setting it up. Yeah. Well, that's true. Uh, don't ever let it set it. Go into advanced settings. Always. Yeah. When you're downloading anything, do not let it set itself by default in anything, um, because then you'll have a really good idea of who's watching what and who's taking what and what they're doing with it. Now, when we talk about Windows 10, what we're not mentioning is Cortana. Yeah. She's kind of bad. your helpful AI, who's Mm. (laughs) cloud-based, so is throwing your information all over the internet while it learns what you want. <laughs> Which is just lovely. That's, yes. that's what you want. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to flat out suggest you don't activate Cortana 
ever. <laughs> you don't need her. I mean, it's not really that hard to type something in a search bar. Really. No, Google works really well. Yeah. Hmm? Google works really well. Mm. Although they steal your information as well, but not quite so blatantly. Um. <laughs> well, I think we've talked about this before. There's like two Googles. Yes. There's like the Google that has gone to court and fought against the NSA accessing people's emails and spent millions of dollars defending one person from NSA surveillance. And yet there's this other part of Google that wants as much information as it can get its hands on. Yes. And that same part of Google works with DARPA and, you know, other government agencies, and I'm not super comfortable with it, but um, maybe I just have a prejudice against AI, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I haven't showed you any creepy robot videos for ages. I know you haven't. That's okay. That's okay. I'm finding myself now. You thought now. you'd find the creepy robot ones until I showed you. Yeah. You know, I mean, it was bad enough watching the the um, the one that was undulating like a snake. That was pretty bad. And I thought the worst thing I had seen up until that point was the, you know, the robot Jaguar that DARPA yeah. had built. No, I, I was so wrong. <laughs> There's so yeah, much the, more... Yeah, those Freak. little cubes are the scary ones. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my so, god, uh, it learns how to move across surfaces. It can be a snake, it can be a spider. It matches, you know, its movement depending on where it is and what it's doing. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's AI, folks. <laughs> yeah, well... Um, Luckily it's not autonomous as of yet, because, yeah. But since I read a report today saying AMD or possibly going to be releasing a 32 core processor next year oh boy <laughs> computing power is getting incredibly high it's getting high a lot faster than we assumed it would do you know what i mean it, it's gaining ability more rapidly than we assumed it, it there's some sort of mathematical law yeah that it's not uh, supposed yeah. to gain as much power as it has, and yet, there you go. Um, well, the one interesting thing, off, I hmm? they thought it was going to start petering off, but it hasn't as yet. It won't. Um, we, for better or for worse, this stuff is here. All we can hope is that the very best and brightest of us have gone about creating something that's not going to um, be the tinder upon which we burn. Um, not the happiest news in the world, but, um, it's here now. So it's so, just, so yeah, the, the generalization really is if you've just upgraded to windows 10, go and check the security settings and turn off all the data shading. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, and I guess I'll read this cause I stuck it in here. Um, by default, Microsoft gets to see your location, keystrokes, and browser history and listen to your microphone and some stuff that is shared with trusted by Microsoft, but not by you partners. You can turn all of this off, of course, by digging through screen after screen of privacy dashboards, navigating the welter of tick boxes that serve the same purpose as all those clean, ration-seeming lines on the craps table to complexify the proposition so you can't figure out if the odds are in your favor. And if you've already chosen to use Firefox as your default browser, Microsoft overrides your decision when you upgrade and switches you to the latest incarnation of the immortal undead monster formerly known as Internet Explorer. 
Under personalization, the first setting tailors your speech, typing, and inking input to the way you talk, type, and write by sending contacts and calculator details along with other associated input data to Microsoft. The next setting sends typing and inking data to Microsoft to improve recognition and suggestion platform. Some people may be comfortable with this usage. After all, third-party smartphones like SwiftKey improve their autocorrect functionality by learning how you type. But for others, sharing contact and calendar details may be a bridge too far. Next is a rather nebulous entry. Let apps use your advertising ID for experiences across apps. What this sentence doesn't quite explain is that Windows 10 generates a unique advertising ID for each user. If this option is enabled, it allows an app developer and ad networks to profile you using that ID and serve you ads based on how you use your PC. The final part of the first settings page, first settings page out of 30, concerns location. Your computer may not have a GPS radio in it like your smartphone does, but if you're connected to the internet, your location can be tracked through your IP address. With this option enabled, you're allowing Windows apps, Windows and apps to request your location, including your location history. That's useful for location-based services like, say, telling a retailer's website where you are so it can give you the address of the nearest store. That's... You can opt out of all this stuff and and Barry's done it. So he knows. I haven't haven't gone... Not on this machine, but on one of my computers. Right, but I haven't gone and thought about thought seriously about Windows 10 yet. Um, I I know that what it wants to know about me I find a little bit disturbing. Yeah, well, you know, I I installed it. I turned Mm -hmm. off all the shading options. Um, and installed my own antivirus because you know <clears throat> don't really trust the built-in Windows one either. Um, <laughs> I don't blame you. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll fiddle with the the one machine I've got it on until I figured out all the settings I like and and once all the updates are available for all the various software and hardware I use because. Mm-hmm. They're not all supported quite yet, funnily enough. <laughs> um, then the main machine will get switched over. But Which I don't blame you for at all. I mean... It, Windows 10 is a good... Perf- I mean, I'm on Windows 7. Uh, right. Windows 10 does have quite considerable perf- performance gains. Um, but, yeah, until it's... Until, until all the games companies, software companies and hardware companies... I've caught up, which could take probably a month or two. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you you will run across small issues with it. Yeah, like any new operating system. Well, I I kind of always prefer to wait till the bugs are out of these things, but you know, you wait long enough, and then it's obsolete. Well, at <laughs> least uh, they have they have stated that this will be their their last operating system. They're just going to keep upgrading this one rather than bringing out completely new ones. Which suggests the underlying um, programming is more modular, so they can switch things out and in as they see fit. Which, you could say it's about bloody time. That's what most other operating (laughs) systems do. Yeah. Well, it's good that they're not installing broken crap on top of more broken crap, which seemed to be the way Windows was heading in the past. Well, I mean, they did a complete 
well, the underlying code was majorly updated at the, Vist, the stage of Vista. Right. Uh, and everything since then has kind of been based on what they did when they brought out Vista. Mm -hmm. uh, Windows 7 was basically just a repair of Vista. Right. Windows 8 was the same thing but with the fancy new touch interface that nobody liked mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and Windows 10 <laughs> fixes that um, well you know I mean I'm not in I'm not in love with Windows if I were a Linux person I, I think I would I would well, have a hard time just because there's so many versions of it I see it quite a lot um, but yeah, Linux isn't as fantastic as lots of people would have you believe. Uh, trust me, I first learned to computer program on Unix, which is what mm -hmm. Linux grew out of. Right. And it's got huge issues too. Um, I don't I don't think anything out there is safe. I no. it, people by default think Tor is safe. No. Tor isn't safe either. The government built it for God's sake. If people really want to get at your computer, they're going to get at your computer. Well, I mean, what was um, it? Just last week, the news um, came that they had hacked an air-gapped computer. Mm -hmm. Air-gapped. That's not supposed to happen. They hacked it with a fucking smartphone. Yep. I mean, this is kind of like why hackers just in general are, are really interesting. They see that there might be a problem and they just can't leave it alone. But, I mean, the good ones kind of bring the issues to the companies and tell them you need to fix this. Then you have other ones who are not so nice. People who write, like, zero-day exploits and stuff. Yeah. Hacking team. <laughs> that would be among the list of people I think are not quite so nice out there. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, I guess since we're on computers... Uh, a little bit of what got talked about in that Cory Doctorow article I was just talking about. That's from Boing Boing, by the way. I'll, I'll get you a link at some point. Uh, it talked about learning about how you type. Yep. Mm. Okay. People so, have well, habits. It learns them. Mm. How the way you type can shatter anonymity, even on tour. Researchers perfect technique that profiles people based upon unique keystroke traits. Security researchers have refined a long theoretical profiling technique into a highly practical attack that poses a threat to Tor users and anyone else who wants to shield their identity online. The technique collects user keystrokes as an individual enters usernames, passwords, and other data into a website. After a training session that typically takes less than 10 minutes, the website, or any site connected to the website, can then determine with a high degree of certainty when that same individual is conducting subsequent online sessions. The profiling works by measuring the minute differences in the way each person presses keys on computer keyboards. Since the pauses between keystrokes and the precise length of time each key is pressed are unique for each person, the profile acts as a sort of digital fingerprint that can betray its owner's identity. The prospect of widely available databases that identify users based on subtle differences in their typing was unsettling enough for researchers at researchers per Fonshime and Paul Moore that they have created a Chrome browser plugin 
that's designed to blunt the threat. The plugin catches the input keystrokes after a brief delay, relays them to the website in a pseudo-random rate. Thorsheim, a security expert who organizes the annual PasswordCon conference, and more, an information security consultant at a U- at UK-based Unity Group, contrived the plugin after thinking through all the ways typing profiles could be used to compromise online anonymity, profiling Tor users. The risk may seem small when you consider one single website collecting this type of information. Runa Sandvik, an independent security researcher and former Tor developer, told Ars Technica. The real concern with behavioral profiling is when it is being done by multiple big websites owned by the same company or organization. The risk to anonymity and privacy is that you can profile me and log what I am doing on one page, then compare that to the profile you've built on another page. Suddenly, the IP address I am using to connect to these two sites matters much less. Sandvik said she visited uh, she visited this profiling demo site, which there's a link to, which I'll have to grab, using a fully updated Tor browser. And the site was able to construct a profile of her unique typing skills. That means Tor anonymized websites, either because her operators are malicious or are cooperating with law enforcement agencies, can use similar profiling scripts that track people across public and dark web destinations. While the Tor browser limits the amount of JavaScript that sites can run, it allowed all the code needed to make the demo profiling app work during Sandvik's experiment. Had JavaScript been disabled altogether, the profiling would have been blocked. So while blocking JavaScript is useful, that approach might not make a difference against a profiling app that found other means other than JavaScript to measure typing characteristics. The garnering of unique keystroke characteristics is an example of what's known as behavioral biometrics or the measurement of something a person does, such as speaking, walking, or typing. So far, Thondersheim and Moore say several banking websites appear to be using keystroke profiling to perform an additional layer of authentication on site users. In theory, such an approach could allow the sites to detect account hijackings, even when the attacker enters the correct username and password. Given the potential benefit of behavioral biometrics, the Chrome plugin can whitelist specific websites that are using it for good. Moore has more about the extension. Um, Hang on. Here. To be fair, behavioral biometrics is by no means a new field of study. Um, as evidenced by a thread on Slashdot from 2007, people have long recognized the potential of using it to identify people behind a keyboard. There's also a huge library of research papers showing how to profile and de-anonymize browsers connecting over Tor. Still, if banks and other sites can use the technique to create reliable and accurate profiles of customers, it stands to reason that governments around the world can and do profile people of interest. As soon as somebody manages to build a biometric profile of your keystrokes at a network website where you are otherwise completely anonymous, that same profile can be used to identify you at other sites you're using, where identifiable information is available about you. Thorsheim wrote in a blog post published Tuesday. Your favorite government agency, pick any country, could set up a spoofed and faked page on the dark web, as well as in the real world, to identify people across people across them. For oppressive regimes, this is most certainly of high interest. Yeah, well, yeah, it's the natural extension of biometrics information. 
Well, yeah. I mean, and, and we've yeah, talked about this. Everybody has a like, unique walk, way to speak. Mm-hmm. And yeah, why would typing be any different? Well, we've talked about this. The more imp- information has kind of become the new currency. Basically, I mean, when you look at some websites and all the information they collect about you um, and the amount of money they make is negligible, but they have all this information and they can sell that. And that's really useful. They can sell it to governments. They can sell it to other websites. And that's really how a lot of them make their money. I mean, although you would have a hard time finding it, digging through their accounting, you know what I mean? It's not well, I mean, exactly something they're running about advertising. The perfect that example doing. is Google itself. I mean, it started just as a search engine, and now mm-hmm. it's um, got little tentacles all over the place. Oh, well, yeah. Because it, yeah, it, it collects the data, it mm-hmm. figures out ways of using the data, it creates new stuff based on what it discovers. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. And if it keeps going, yeah, it could eventually end up having one one giant corporation running the world. Um Google Inc. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm un, I'm as uncomfortable with that idea as I am of a one world government type of deal. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean it, it's unlikely to happen because, well, other companies uh, won't wear it. I would no. say governments, but yeah, they can't call big corporations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. So, um, the TSA was in the news again <laughs> today, and then they did something else. So, I guess I'll go with what they did today first, just because it's kind of interesting and it, it breaks things up a little bit, because that was so freaking cheerful about biometrics and just that, you know... Is harder for you to protect your privacy than you think it should have to be. But everybody does everything online now. And that leaves you kind of vulnerable to that. Um, TSA decides sorority souvenir book carried by dozens of travelers is probably a bomb. Hundreds of travelers attempting to fly out of Houston's Hobby Airport were delayed for hours as TSA agents confronted the massive security threat posted by a book, actually several books, several identical books, carried by several flyers leaving the same event. We had a large group with a large number of bags to be checked because of a certain item in those bags. There was additional screening necessary, said Bill Bagley with Hobby Airport. A spokesman for the airport says the sorority members were apparently given booklets at this convention that could be mistaken for explosives when packed inside checked bags. The booklets forced TSA officials to hand-check most of the luggage. Nice use of the word forced. Even if the book appeared suspicious at first, perhaps the interface could have been drawn that other passengers were wearing the same sorority insignia on their almost universally red clothing, were carrying the same non-threatening book, or does behavioral detection, the TSA's mind-reading initiative that watches for suspicious patterns only detect suspicion, not the lack thereof. So, yeah, you, you should see. It's a little picture book. It's 
ridiculous. Better safe than sorry, the TSA strangulated way of thinking kept this from being pursued logically, as Kevin Underhill points out. Of course, I suppose it's not impossible that ISIS coordinated an attack plan with the annual Delta Sigma Theta convention, but the chances of that are sufficiently close to zero that I'd feel safe enough waving these ladies through. Maybe it wasn't ISIS. Maybe it was hundreds of lone wolves all wearing red and white clothing and all carrying the same bomb slash book. Instead of seeing this common element as something non-suspicious after the first thorough search, the TSA apparently treated every repeat quote-unquote incident as, as its own particularized threats. Flights were delayed, but not a single one was made any safer by these extra inspection efforts. So far, the TSA has yet to comment on its actions, leaving that unenviable task to airport officials. Meanwhile, travelers continue to give the TSA more credit than it deserves. I'm sure they were doing the best that they could, but it just wasn't enough. It wasn't enough, sorority alumnus Cassandra Thome said. Their best is routinely terrible. And for all the talk about becoming a smarter, more responsive security agency, the TSA continues to brute force its way through the day-to-day business of keeping up appearances. Oh, yeah, the latest thing, don't take a book through airport security. Oh, and for God's sake, don't be part of a sorority. Obviously, they're they're terrible. That kind of goes without saying anyway. Well, right, but I'm saying they're obviously terrible criminal masterminds. Well, they're cults. I mean, (laughs) yeah, technically you could use a book to be a bomb. It depends what's been used to make the nice shiny cover. Mm-hmm. Because there are chemicals that can be used in certain plastic manufacture. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, TSA. Dumb as shit. Yeah. In, yeah, you know, um, they are pretty much useless. And I've, I've said before, I'm, I'm not a fan of security theater. If you're going to yeah. do security, you by God need to do security. And um, ha- has anybody ever seen the inside of the airports in Jerusalem? <laughs> no, and I'm never going to. Uh, yeah, I hope I never have to either, but that is security. I mean, that's not a joke. That's security. You get let into a room, and you stand around waiting while people are standing there with machine guns watching you. And, and they're profiling. If you do not they will beat the crap out of you and shoot you. You won't make it out of that airport alive. But then you get moved into another room where your behavior is monitored yet again in a different way by a different group of people. And some people get separated there. And then, you know, you finally get let into a third room where, by God, there is security that's unlike anything you've ever seen. And it's not like the joke the TSA puts on at all our freaking airports. So if you want to waste the money for security, actually do security. Don't pretend to. Because what they're doing is pretending to, and they're endangering people. Does anybody remember that report last year where, what was it, 94% of all the weapons and pretend bombs that the U.S. government sent through with their people were undetected by TSA baggage handlers or, or anyone at the airport at all. Yeah. That's a terrible track record. Oh, and they, they keep losing explosives. Which is the one I always find concerning. 
Well, we put a par we put we put a pack of actual explosive in some random luggage, and they didn't find it, and now we don't know where it is. <laughs> I'm like, Pardon? <laughs> yeah, shouldn't you have like, the shut the whole airport until you found it? <laughs> yeah, they're the best of the best of the best. So I, I think it's kind of ridiculous. Anyway, so uh, on to more stuff. This is from The Intercept, which, I mean, I think everybody knows. I, I I almost don't question anything The Intercept puts up, although I will go looking for other sources just because I don't like... I don't like um, not being absolutely sure before I put something out there. This is true. TSA's Behavior Detection Program has a newsletter, and it's ridiculous. The Transportation Security Administration's embattled Behavior Detection Program has not identified a single terrorist, but it has produced a glossy bi-monthly newsletter poking fun at the traveling public. In these employee newsletters, six of which were obtained by The Intercept, and there's links to that, and somebody will put them in chat, Behavior detection officers who are supposed to help spot possible terrorists sometimes make fun of inexperienced or nervous travelers, including one, quote, sweet old lady who thought the bowl for metallic objects was a tip jar. On their own, the newsletters could be regarded as lighthearted workplace fun, but they're also part of a controversial billion-dollar program known as screening of passengers by observation techniques or spot which employs specifically trained officers known as behavior detection officers to rate passengers going through screening for signs of deception. Those alleged signs of deception, which the Intercept revealed last year, include excessive yawning and wringing of hands, and have been widely criticized for lacking any basis in science or even common sense. The Intercept has also reported on the program's flawed design that targets undocumented immigrants, not potential terrorists. The newsletter issues raised, range from seven to nine pages and provide a forum for behavior detection officers to share stories about confiscated wine, showcase original poetry, an ode to Alaska, for example, and in one case, promote an officer's dog breeding business. The officer says her TSA training to spot deception helps her read potential dog buyers. A section called BDO Funnies highlights naive or nervous passengers, including an example of an officer successfully convincing one woman going through security that a swab used to detect explosives was instead testing for DNA. At other times, the newsletters praise healthy behavior detection officers for providing customer service to the traveling public by explaining security procedures or helping passengers. There are also mentions of various pilot programs or tests or attempts to test out metrics and track and evaluate the program overall. Some officers detail their goals for the year. This year's goal is to visit the Botanical Gardens, which is adjacent to the beautiful and newly remodeled airport, and learn more about the indigenous plants and species that share in improving our air quality, reads one item. Others highlight past memorable moments or achievements. One team, for example, wrote about a botched attempt to reheat a chicken sandwich in the airport's break room microwave. Someone forgot to remove the foil wrapper, and the sandwich became engulfed in flames, then exploded. Much of the newsletter space is devoted to a very lengthy 
regional articles about the weather with headlines like Surviving the Snow in Bangor, Maine, Beating the Summer Heat in Milwaukee, and Yes, It Snows in Arizona. The newsletters also offer insights into the background of some of the behavior detection officers who are supposed to be able to spot potential terrorists just by looking at them. How many of us can look back 20 years at the Susan Smith case specifically at that famous news conference where she insisted there had been a carjacking and her children were in the car, wrote one officer. I know I turned to my husband and said, she's lying. I knew nothing about BDO at the time. I just knew her behavior contradicted her words. Prior to joining the TSA, the behavior detection officer worked as a travel agent for the Walt Disney Company. Newly confirmed TSA Administrator Peter Neufringer faced tough questions from lawmakers earlier this week about the agency's failure to spot weapons and explosives 96% of the time in recent tests. The congressional panel also raised questions about the Behavior Detection Officer Program. Neufringer said he needed to continue to look at the program before making decisions about its future. In response to the Intercept's questions about the content and the purpose of newsletters, TSA spokesperson person, Bruce Anderson, said they were one of the myriad methods used by the agency to engage and encourage communication across its workforce. An engaged and informed workplace is crucial to the TSA's mission while ensuring that we treat all passengers fairly and with dignity and integrity, the spokesperson said via email. Employees who feel part of a community and recognized are more engaged and better performers at their security mission. BDOs in Motion is a newsletter written by behavior detection officers. As always, professionalism and integrity are at the core of who we are as Homeland Security professionals, and the TSA strives to demonstrate this with every passenger at every airport around the country. The TSA did not answer the Intercept's questions regarding the cost and time involved in producing the newsletters. There is a... Bunch of them. Yeah, I've put them in. The the one that gets me, right, we need to find out where the ex-Disney worker is based. And just get all the cosplayers to go through the airport. Oh, good God. This is just... (laughs) (laughs) This stuff is just horrific because you read it and you're like, I'm reading it out loud and it sounds like I'm a newscaster for The Onion. (laughs) I'm not. Oh, I'm could, be the, you. could be the daily mashup. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So it's um, it's pretty bad when actual serious hard news is almost as laughable as stuff from the Onion. You say to yourself, "Well, how can you take it seriously?" And it's not about us taking it seriously. It's about the things that the government takes seriously. I like, and, I like how they keep calling themselves professionals, though. Oh yeah, I liked the dignity, integrity. Of every passenger at every airport. That's a lie. How many of us have seen... (laughs) Well, how many of us have seen people hysterical because they've made people pull out their, their, like, their, after they've had double mastectomies, pull out their false breasts, or um, they've gone and they've, you know, ripped a colostomy bag open on a passenger, or they've yelled something like, oh, hey, this guy's wearing a diaper. That's... Dignity, that's yeah. respect, that's integrity. You know, I, I have a real problem with what some of these people do. And well, it might the, just the, be a small percentage, some, but... 
damn. Some good Cause... stuff on securities from the comedian Adam Hills. Uh, he's an Australian. Yeah. He's got mm. a artificial foot. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, he's got lots of funny stories about security. Because, obviously, uh, he has to wear the foot to be able to walk. Right. So then he goes through the airport, goes through the metal detector, and, of course, yeah. He then has to take his foot off and put it on the bench. And, <laughs> and yeah, he, he tells how, yeah, suddenly they completely change. You know, when they detect something's wrong, it's like, get over there, we need to search you, blah, blah, blah. And then he takes his foot off and they're like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, at least they're good about it. Um, I, yeah. A lot of these people in TSA aren't. And I think it's probably not widely known that a lot of these people got these jobs after when the TSA was first hiring screening personnel. They placed ads on Domino's pizza boxes. I think that's yeah. probably not widely well known. So, just uh, yeah, food so, for thought. Uh, well, yeah, so so what you're saying is there's probably a lot of stoners working in TSA? <laughs> um, that is quite possible. <laughs> uh, I just, some of this stuff is just beyond ridiculous to me. I don't, I don't understand how people can walk around this sort of paranoid. And I, I didn't publicize this one, but it bothered the hell out of me. It bothered me a lot. I don't know exactly why um, it did, but I have a real problem with this. And I think mostly the reason I have a problem with this is because this is a person I watched lamb based this other person on a regular semi-regular basis for stuff they've done okay john stewart's secret white house visits obama slash aids took unusual steps to cultivate the daily show comic john stewart slipped unnoticed into the white house in the midst of the october 2011 budget fight summoned to an oval office coffee with president barack obama that he jokingly told his escort felt like being called into the principal's office. In February 2014, Obama again requested Stewart make the trip from Manhattan to the White House, this time for a mid-morning visit, hours before the president would go on television cameras to warn Russia that there will be costs if it made any further military intervention in the Ukraine. To engage privately with the president in his inner sanctum at two sensitive moments, previously unreported meetings that are listed in the White House visitor logs and confirmed to Politico by three former Obama aides, speaks volumes about Stewart and his reach, which goes well beyond the million or two viewers who turn into The Daily Show on most weeknights. Love Stewart's jokes or hate them, he has proven to be a unique voice who is capable of turning in the weeds policy discussions into viral video sensations that the country is still talking about the next morning. As the White House recognized, Stewart can, at times, be a more potent influence on policy than Obama himself. The 52-year-old funny man is widely credited with changing how the government treated military veterans and September 11th first responders and for the cancellation of a hyper-partisan CNN talk show. 
his broadsides against President George W. Bush's Iraq war and a series of Obama missteps had a searing effect on how Americans thought about Washington. Top Obama aides David Axelrod and Austrian Galsby knew Stewart's voice mattered and made sure to field calls and emails from the host and Daily Show staff. Looking back on Stewart's 16-year run, which ends with a final show next Thursday, Democratic and Republican officials, including many of the lawmakers and administrators' aides he's routinely skewered, said in interviews there are plenty of identifiable marks where Stewart has made a difference. I'd be hard-pressed to think of a person who spoke with the same amount of authority to that big group of people, said Eric Lesser, a former Obama White House aide now serving in the Massachusetts State Senate. Reminded that he had once worked for the President of the United States, Lesser quickly added this caveat, people in the media. Stuart rose to prominence just as the stature of network news anchors failed. With the departure of Tom Brokaw and Dan Rather, a new generation of news consumers tuned to Stuart for his satire and commentary and in the process got schooled in the headlines of the day. Even though his live TV audiences averaged around 1.3 million, a mix of liberal, educated, liberal, comma, educated viewers, including the hard-to-reach 18 to 34-year-old males, Comedy Central's searchable archive system also helped the cause because every segment can be, can live on the web. He's a modern-day Will Rogers and Mark Twain, Senator John McCain of Arizona, a frequent Republican guest on Stewart's show, said in an interview. Stewart's tearful opening monologue nine days after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, effectively served as the opening salvo of an ongoing crusade for firefighters, police officers, and other people who came to the World Trade Center site, literally with buckets rebuilding. Nearly a decade later, Stewart invited four of those responders sick with a variety of serious ailments to explain their health situations. Their graphic discussions helped break a legislative log jam in the Senate by shaming Republicans who at the time were filibustering a bill that would provide billions in health benefits and compensation to the 911 responders who had become ill after their work at Ground Zero. This is why you can't trust the government. They said the air was safe to breathe. It wasn't safe to breathe. Congress passed the legislation three days after Stewart's show. What took us eight years of walking the halls of Congress, John Stewart, in 22 minutes, literally moved mountains and gave us a heartbeat again when we were flatlined, said John Field, an Army veteran and post-9-11 cleanup worker. In March 2009, Stewart discussed the new Obama administration's idea of removing veterans with private insurance plans from the Department of Veteran Affairs roles. That can't be right, he intoned. The White House scrapped the plan one day after his segment aired, and veterans advocates recall Stewart's commentary being discussed during a West Wing meeting with senior aides, including then-Chief of Staff Rahm Emanuel. Other examples of Stewart's crusading for the vets include a May 2014-bit lampooning VA Secretary Eric Seneski for giving mild-mannered answers to Congress about an epic backlog in medical disability claims. He diagnosed Sineski and others in the administration as having PBSD, post-bureaucratic stress disorder. I don't think there's been a single person in the media who's more strongly influenced the support of veterans' policies than John Stewart, said Paul Regeroff, founder and CEO of Iraq and Afghani Veterans of America. 
Stewart's successes extended into simple public discourse, too, most notably with an October 2004 guest appearance on CNN's Crossfire to help change the lineup for daytime cable television talk shows. In a live segment, Stewart pleaded with co-hosts Tucker Carlson and Paul Begla to stop hurting America with their partisan bickering. Three months later, citing Stewart's comments, CNN canceled the show and ended its relationship with Carlson. I agree wholeheartedly with John Stewart's overall premise, CNN President Jonathan Klein said at the time, according to a report from the New York Times. Last month, Stewart had another straight-to-camera moment, channeling his disgust over what would be a we-don't-do-jack-shit national response to the gun rampage in Charleston, South Carolina, that left nine African-Americans dead. The Confederate flag flies over South Carolina, and the roads are named for Confederate generals, Stewart said near the end of his nearly six-minute monologue. And the white guy is the one who feels like his country is being taken away from him. Many credit Stewart with helping set the tone for the sweeping national debate about the appropriateness of flying the Confederate flag and its eventual removal from the South Carolina state capitol. Whether it's guns or the VA or anything like that, he tried to reflect back, I think, a national sentiment or a national mood to policymakers. And he did it sometime poignantly, and he did it other times very harshly with very harsh words and biting humor. But the idea is, I need you to pay attention to this, and I need you to do something better, said Michael Steele, the former Republican National Committee chairman. This goes kind of on and on and on and on and on. Um, We're getting our news from a comedian. Yeah. And that comedian is so influential that politicians court them. So you have to wonder how accurate is the news you're getting from Comedy Central now? I mean, I guess um, that's yeah. that's what I take away from this. Well, we've got we had something kind of similar in the UK. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had a a nightly news program called Newsnight. Right. And for years there was one host that all the politicians were actually afraid of. <laughs> uh, you might have heard of him, Jeremy Paxman. Because mm-hmm. he didn't used to let them get away with any bullshit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if they didn't answer a question, he'd keep asking the question until they answered it. Right. And that's it. The politicians now are breathing a sigh of relief because he's retired from doing the show. Right, but, I mean, here's what I'm saying. John McCain has nothing nice to say about anyone who's a liberal. I mean, that's just that's just John McCain. Mm-hmm. I, I've seen the things this man says. He, he has literally nothing nice to say about liberals. And yet, he was full of nothing but praise about John Stewart. I, I just... This this does show you, um, mm-hmm. John Stewart, huge sway with the public. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the politicians yeah. are afraid of him. They have to court him, because if he starts lampooning them, that's them sunk. <laughs> and <laughs> that's very true. That's what you need in media. Um, unfortunately, we're getting less and less of this every year. I say, well, we'll have to wait and see how Trevor Noah does taking over. Right. Um, but he is quite an outspoken comedian as well, and isn't American, so <laughs> <laughs> possibly is less scared of uh, what politicians may try to do to him. You um, know, so. I, I don't, 
I don't get it. They're just people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, don't get me yeah, wrong. The other show you've got is uh, done by John Oliver, the yes. again British comedian. Last week tonight. Yeah. And yeah, it's in in the US. It seems to be the the comedians are the only ones saying anything about politics, really. They're um, the only ones left who can. Yeah. They're the only ones left who can that won't end up on some fucking list. Yeah. I mean, it's, as I say, over here, the last holdout journalist we seem to have was Jeremy Paxman. He's now mm-hmm. sadly gone. Newsnight has continued, right. but nobody's quite as aggressive with the politicians as he was. Um, but at least they're still trying. <laughs> I yeah. don't think you have anyone trying very hard in the U.S., from the we, we don't have people on TV doing it. You've got to look at it. It's in print. Yeah. A lot of it's in print. The Intercept does a really good job. And I say that knowing that The Intercept's news has a definite left bias. Yeah. So to counter that, before I read you anything that they wrote, I try to find something with a definite right bias that tells the same kind of story and try to figure out which one is more truthful. Because I hate telling you something that I think is completely wrong or isn't completely factual. Yeah. I think there's a problem with that. And I think most people don't tune into the news to find out what's really going on. They tune into the news to have their viewpoint confirmed. Of confirmed. Yeah. Exactly. To see like-minded people talking about like-minded things. and well, news isn't about news anymore. No, it's, it's not. About it's about affirming who you are, which is... Yeah. Whereas, it's completely... Yeah, all, all you're left with is the comedians uh, lampooning everything. Well, they have to. And thankfully, I mean, they still do. So, yeah. yeah. If you want to tell yeah, them... I, mean, in, I, sh- I, sh- I Gave you links to Adam Hills and oh, yeah. showed the last leg. I know my you God, want... yeah, what he says about politicians. Yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> he hasn't been arrested yet. Um, well, <laughs> if you want to tell a man the truth, you have to make him laugh. Yeah, that, that's the only real discourse you have left, unless you're willing to sift through and and read this stuff. I am. I know you are to some extent. You know, everybody's got the thing they're interested in. I'm mostly interested in in digital liberty, digital privacy, technology, because I think a lot of the government stories leave me with the feeling there's very little I can do to change it. Um, and I think everyone has that feeling. So if tuning in to a comedian makes you feel better about how you get your news, I mean, you should do it, but there are other sources there. Look for them. Try to get out of your comfort zone with the news. You have to. Yeah, the internet is a big place and there's lots of news sites. Mm-hmm. Okay, sometimes it's kind of hard figuring out which are the parody ones and which are the real <laughs> ones, as you said no, earlier. Uh, you but... just have to read the about me. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, but some of them are really good at f- doing Predic- um, weird ones of those as well. Oh, yeah, or they predict the future. Which is 
utterly disturbing. I think the onions done it two or three times so far. Yeah. Um, and in really disturbing ways. So, but yeah, um, again, even, even on the internet, sometimes the onion daily marsh, um, mm-hmm. loads of those parody sites give you better news than some of the main outlets. Of course. Cause what they're parodying lets you know what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah. It's, it's just a sad state of affairs now. What journalism, what this fourth estate, this fourth branch of government, what it was supposed to do, what it's actually done. I mean, the people in Congress and the people in politics, they're pretty much the joke now. And comedians have got to tell you the truth about what they do. Yeah. It's a screwed up world, man. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. In, in the U.S., a lot of it stems back to uh, George Carlin. Big I miss him. Comedians. Um, he was great. There were he, a lot he of was really, the first really outspoken political comedian you had, I think. Yeah, I mean, Louis Black is is pretty good. Uh, not great. Um, what was his name? It's just a ride. I think everybody knows who I'm talking about. Um, he was about, oh God, I forget his name. Crap. Um, but he was about the uh, first comedian who really spoke about um, truth, at least in the 80s and 90s, you know, before he died of liver cancer. God, why can't I remember his name? He was very big in the UK, actually. Uh, bigger Bill than Hicks. he. Yeah, Bill Hicks. He was yeah, also well, he very was, good. He, he was a. Uh... Student, if you will, of um, oh, people are complaining. I'm too quiet. Okay. Um, yeah, Bill Hicks was was a, a fan of George Carlin. So mm-hmm. yeah, but Bill Hicks got a bigger audience than George Carlin did. Uh, well, for a start, he was younger. So I don't know. No, I think Bill Hicks was actually hugely popular in the UK. Not oh, he so was, much yeah. here. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I, I've talked about it with you before, but mm-hmm. most of your really sharp uh, acerbic comedians seem to end up over here. Yeah, in the UK. Yeah, it's. Uh, I I think um, after a while, we get disgusted with hearing the truth over and over, no matter how you present it. Speaking of truth, I guess it's only about four minutes to seven. So it's not really a good time to start another topic. But I don't know that. I don't know there's anything else we can really talk about. Although the video you popped into chat earlier um, was amazing. I I think it's. Yeah, I can pop that back in chat again. Awesome. What's going on with SWOF? Yes. I'm really the really latest proud video I, is out from Smoke Without Fire. Yeah. I'm really, really proud that I backed that venture. Yeah. I mean there yeah, are people people keep commenting that the Oh, when's the video coming out? And they're like yeah, don't you remember he said when he started making it? It was gonna be from the early days right through to the law being enacted. So yeah. He won't be releasing the film until the TPD comes out, basically, and it's being legislated. Yeah, so, 
Yeah. Yeah, but it's not like you haven't had video updates all along the way. Oh, and people also forget he works full-time as a video editor for the BBC, so he's a busy guy. <laughs> yeah, but he hasn't forgotten No, no. his promise. He's going to be at Vape Fest at the weekend, so, mm -hmm. yeah, doing more filming. Let me ask you something. Before we bring Alex on, because I, I really enjoy bringing the room down. Apparently, that's what I live <laughs> for. Um... Are you guys really thinking this is the last time you're all really going to be getting be able to be getting together like this? Are you really thinking the TPD is going to wipe all that away? Well, the way it's worded, it could. That's the problem. Um, and it's one of those things, the way the TPD has been written, it could wipe it away, but it's up to how our government is going to enforce so if they enforce strictly, yeah, this could be the last vape fest. If they aren't really that worried and don't enforce strictly, then mm -hmm. we might get away with having it again. But we probably won't be able to have all the vendors. Right. Um, you'll be able to have big meets, but you'll, there won't be people there selling um, vaping equipment. Yeah. Because that would be count, count as promotional activity. So, yeah. Well, maybe if you would put up curtains covering everybody's booths, so, you know, it would be like plain packaging. I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm kind of kidding. I mean, it's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, I, I bet there's already bureaucrats thinking about plain packaging for e-cigarettes. Oh, they were here. Mm -hmm. They were here a couple of years ago. There was some jackass in New York who wanted to pass something like that, if I remember correctly makes no difference to sales whatsoever but they still <laughs> love going ahead with these things yeah well um well no that's not strictly true australia the australia experiment with plain tobacco packaging it did make a difference to the market it made a difference all, to the black all the cheap market brands no no all the cheap brands their sales increased all the premium <laughs> brands the sales of those went down because people just started asking for whatever was the cheapest <laughs> Which, why wouldn't you when cigarettes are like 20 bucks a pack? Yeah. Okay, it's about, it's 7 o'clock. Should we see if see Alex is about? Find Alex, yeah. <clears throat> Good evening, Alex. Hi, Alex. Good evening. Hello. Good evening and welcome to the CASA update for the week of 8-3-2015. How are you this evening, Alex? I know you were kind of busy this weekend with stuff. Um, work stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Not necessarily CASA stuff. Well. But, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm hanging in there. It's our busy season, so. Uh, I know how that feels. Winter is, is busy season where I am and it's kind of crazy. Yeah. So, what's been going on this week? Well, <clears throat> um, I just, well, not, not just, but a few hours ago, I just got an email about Rockland County, New York. Um, it's going to be, for those unfamiliar with the geography, uh, Rockland County shares a border with New Jersey. Okay. Um, and it's kind of a little, it's a, 
slice of pizza shaped county um, okay. bordered to the south by New Jersey and the east, the Hudson River. Um, and their uh, county legislature will be uh, considering an, a countywide indoor vaping ban. And it's kind of funny in the, well, tragically funny, I guess, um, in the bill itself, in, in the findings and intent, uh, item C is, it has been determined that carcinogenic chemicals, including formaldehyde, have been found in variable amounts in electronic cigarette aerosols, raising significant health and safety concerns. Um, mm. I just, I, I, it's humorous to me how certain they are um, that these products are just, it's, it's almost as if they're saying this is going to give you cancer. So, um, yeah. which I would say, I mean, if, if the levels of formaldehyde present in electronic cigarettes are your concern, then I, I think maybe Rockland County should, should be going after people's know, couches, <laughs> carpets, um, other household products, mm -hmm. um, perhaps, well, perhaps the health squad can knock down some doors in the middle of night, the night and <laughs> rummage through people's cleaning products. Um, well, they, what they should be doing is te testing what we exhale because then they can jail a lot of people for deliberately exhaling formaldehyde into the air when they're not vaping, they're not smoking. They're not using nicotine products of any kind. That might be a fun project for them. It, it could be a, a <clears throat> significant revenue stream for the county. Mm, um, very true. So uh, Rockland County legislators, if you're listening, um, just walk around with some sort of uh, gas sampling device and, and just <laughs> issue a bunch of fines for exhaling formaldehyde. Um, you'll, you'll be in the black in no time. <laughs> um, so that meeting is, uh, tomorrow at 7.05 PM, something like that. Seven o'clock. All right. Tuesday, August 4th, 2015 at 7 PM. Uh, this will be held in the Alice in Paris office building in new city, not New York city, but new city, New York. Uh huh. Um, and, uh, this is item, I think, I don't know what item it is. <laughs> I just I just started reading this as we were as I was waiting for you to call. So okay. um, that should suffice to say, uh, Rockland County, start contacting your lawmakers. <sighs> um, and then uh, I feel like we've beaten Alabama into the ground here, but um, I believe the hearing for Alabama is, or is the special session starts tomorrow. Yes. Um, and I, I believe this tax bill is, uh, it's possible it's on the agenda. I'm not entirely sure. Uh, but whatever, this is happening, uh, this week. Right. Um, and for those that still might need some convincing, uh, I don't know if people actually need convincing in Alabama. Alabama's, um, gotten pretty active behind this. But uh, this is this is pretty horrible. Um, this isn't like uh, you know a small percentage wholesale tax that uh, wholesalers and retailers can kind of absorb to some extent and, and not pass on the 
the, the hike to consumers. Mm -hmm. uh, this is intended to be passed on to consumers. Um, it's 25% um, per, is it a per millimeter tax? I'm, I'm reading this wrong. <laughs> it's 25 cents per milliliter. 20, 25 cents per milliliter, sorry. Yes, yeah. 25 cents per milliliter uh, on nicotine containing liquids, um, which I would assume might even, it's pretty vague here, that would likely even affect DIY people. Um, so, yeah. Um, and of course, the, the other bits in, in here is, you know, whenever we're talking about taxes, there's other costs that go along with taxes. So it's not just a cost being passed on to the consumer, but wholesalers and retailers also have to manage all of this, whatever, paperwork. Um, this bill actually talks about stamps. Um, sometimes those are, I doubt it, but sometimes those are provided by the state. Sometimes you have to buy them. At the very least, you have to buy equipment to affix the stamps on your products, um, which can be ten, tens of thousands of dollars just for this machine, um, which is something that is beyond the reach of a, a retailer. Mm -hmm. So it, in a sense, it forces you to work with wholesalers in the state who might be able to afford that. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not exactly clear if that's what this bill is suggesting, but um, this is just to throw it out there and everybody should keep in mind that you know a tax bill isn't just a tax bill there are ancillary costs that mm -hmm. uh that threaten businesses and, and of course oh, yeah. our access mm -hmm. yeah that'll so, force that'll force businesses completely to go under yeah. if, if you have to buy that equipment <clears throat> to fix a tax stamp yeah <sighs> so right. um yeah so uh, uh um Everybody should be aware that you know, Alabama should be aware that uh, our call to action is up. We also have a link to the Breathe Easier Alliance of Alabama, who have been um, close to this and uh, help, actually helping to keep us informed. Uh, so follow them on Facebook. And uh, yeah, take two minutes and uh, send an email to lawmakers right now. That's that's. That's pretty much all I've got. Um, <laughs> uh, it looks like things are, are starting to move in California. I'm not entirely certain what's going on. Um, I did get a legislative update from somebody today, and it's a very long, scary list of bills. Oh, God. Um, and it just, I think, pretty much every... It's, it's assembly bills and Senate bills, and it is four pages long. I'm not going to read every single one of these, but you can pretty much use your imagination and fill in the blanks here. Um, California is attacking uh, vaping from pretty much every conceivable angle, with the exception of outright prohibition. Um, well. <laughs> <laughs> well, not yet. Uh, give them time. Uh, it is, after all, home of uh, Glance the Ants, so, you know, hooray. Yes, but it, it's it's also home to some very creative and, and engaged advocates. So, um, California yeah. is, at, at the very least, 
Um, they're not going to go down without a fight. Do you no. know what I mean? Uh, that's, that's, it's, it's, uh, awesome. it's, it's entertaining and inspiring to, uh, to watch them work. So, yeah. so kudos. Um, did you, is it my imagination or did you send out HR 2058 again? Last week, actually, um, last week I sent out a reminder to everybody. Uh, we had an an additional co-sponsor had signed on, um, just for the, you know, for those keeping score, this is pretty much a, a partisan bill. It's 24 or 26 Republicans. Uh, have signed on as co-sponsors, um, and uh, in general, it would—I I, I, don't—it doesn't really matter which party, but uh, I think we can see which way the wind is blowing on this. Um, it is every Republican uh, Congress person signed on as a sponsor. I think it would send a pretty profound message. So, um, and at the end of the day, no matter what party you're representative is affiliated with you know, should be talking to them um yeah. and also that's something that I'm, I'm working on tonight and hopefully uh, we'll have it nailed down for tomorrow or wednesday um the uh, u.s congress is sort of on recess i that might not be the right word but um this for the month of august up until or just after labor day um all of your representatives, all of our representatives are home in their districts. And so this is a great time for people to reach out and try to get a, a, you know, an in-person meeting with your representative and ask them to co-sponsor HR 2058. Um, yes. So we're, we're putting that together uh, as we speak actually. And um, it's pretty simple. You know, you can, if you if you just Google who is my representative, who is my U.S. representative, you'll find on the House of Representatives page. It's it's a simple tool. You just type in your zip code, and uh, it will return you know who your representative is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you sort of once you get to your reps website, um, you do have to look around and, and find out you know what it takes to actually. Uh, set up a meeting. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. it's not. There really is no simple point and click way yeah. of doing this. But you know, you're just you're looking for a phone number, an email, some sort of mm-hmm. contact form right. to uh, try to set up a meeting. And, right, uh, and you you might not always get to meet with your Congress critter. I I was actually um, lucky to meet with Rubio. Not that I felt lucky, and um, the other bastard um, Nelson. Um, before, but uh, you mentioned the word tobacco in Florida, and they freak out because the cigar industry is huge here, mm. and that was that was how I got in. <laughs> I'm not stupid; I do know what I'm doing, um, and that's how I got in to see them. And that was the only way I got in to see them. I think otherwise, I would have been stuck speaking to one of their representatives. You know, yeah, um, a, a, a staffer is um, probably yeah. your most likely. Mm-hmm. Um, person you're going to meet, but uh, yeah. you know that's they're they're there to uh, listen to you and take your message back to their boss. So mm-hmm. um, it's not a it's not a wasted opportunity, and it's 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 well oh, no. time. 
it's it's important to keep channels open with these people and and most people very rarely take the time to do it um so it's they make you jump through hoops the more hoops you're willing to jump through the more serious you are about your issue and i i think one visit i wish i really knew what that represented i wish someone would actually tell us because i i know they tell us a, a, a snail mail letter equals like a hundred calls or 300 right. emails. I wish someone would tell us what one constituent jumping through all those hoops, how many people that equals, because that would be really fascinating to me to, to know that number. So that would be I, really interesting. I think I just came up with the back of the envelope number and said that, you know, one visit equals thousands of emails and, mm-hmm. um, probably tens of thousands of signatures, probably hundreds of thousands of signatures on a petition. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it is very valuable. Um, even if you're, even if you're getting that secondhand exposure to your congressperson, um, mm-hmm. through their staff, it's, uh, yeah, it's still very important. Um, yeah. so in this order, uh, go register to vote and mm-hmm. then research who your representatives are and reach out and make contact with them and try to set up a meeting. Um, you've got the month of August to do it. So, um, it's, uh, you know, there is no time like the present. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and while they're home, um, doing the things they do at home, which a lot of times involves, they run like legal clinics and stuff, um, for people who have problems getting like, um, disability benefits or, um, army benefits uh they do a lot of that stuff a a lot of the actual stuff you wouldn't think they do that's what they're doing now so it's it's stuff that really is supposed to matter to people in the home district if it matters to you you should make the time to reach out do it now see if you can't invite them out to a, a vape shop yeah one you've been in before yeah (laughs) <laughs> the one that you vetted, preferably, yes. yes. No, I remember seeing a lot of the, the, the smoke without fire uh, folks uh, in, in the UK uh, mm-hmm. actually inviting the, the MEPs yeah. to uh, some of the vape shops there, and, and that was that was actually a pretty powerful video. Um, yeah, and uh, you know those are those are golden opportunities. So um, mm-hmm. hopefully, hopefully we can get some people out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and. Um... Speaking of that, when you were saying last week how important it is for testimonials, put your testimonial up on the CASA website if vaping or using snus or snuff or another tobacco harm reduction method has has helped you cut down or stop smoking or, or whatever, because those stories really do matter. Your personal stories are probably your biggest selling point. They're like digital currency. And the more of those we have, the more powerful and persuasive methods we have to talk to these people. Because what they really understand is numbers. The amount of people it takes to vote to get them in and to allow them to continue to keep a very well-paying job. Um, that is what they understand most of all. It's a numbers game to politicians. And we need to play to our strengths. And there are hundreds of thousands of us. Millions. Not millions. So 
we can increase those numbers and and make things easier for people who are actually going to meet with their legislators face to face. They can take all that stuff with them. It's yeah. how we support each other, even if we're not all doing the same thing. Know what I mean? Well said. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is that it for this week, Alex, you think? That's it. I'm going to enjoy uh, the brief update. I'm sure that Julie will enjoy it as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> She'll <laughs> like this. Um, thank you for everything you do. Um, and thank you for listening to this update. If you've listened to it, um, thank you for watching it on YouTube. If you've watched it on YouTube, if you've not already become a Kassa member, uh, please join us at Kassa.org. It's free and easy for you. And... Like I said, this is a numbers game. What politicians understand are numbers. The more we increase our numbers, the more powerful our voices to help you, to help yourself. Um, and uh, we are Kasa.org. Um, the website, you can find the testimonial site from there. Um, we are Kasa Media on Twitter, YouTube, <laughs> Google+. Plus, um, just about anywhere in Instagram. So um, come check us out and come join us on the official Casa Facebook page or the We Are Casa Facebook group. We would love to talk to you. Thank you for supporting us. Have a good night and we'll see you next week. Thank you, Alex, for everything you do. Thanks. Thanks. Good night. Good night. Say smoke without fire has a lot of influence everywhere. Yes. So it's a good thing. We can learn from each other and we can support each other, which is awesome. Um, not really sure what else to say about that. But um, let's see. We talked about the TSA. I kind of went off about John Stewart, which not really... Um, did we talk about CISA? Uh, not yet, no. No, okay. Here's how CISA helps the NSA scrape the internet backbone to read your emails well. The National Security Agency is sitting on a new surveillance apparatus awaiting congressional action to help them begin collecting a massive amount of new data on people in the U.S. that they can view and share without a warrant. According to documents made available to the press by Edward Snowden in 2012, the Department of Justice secretly approved the NSA to begin using cyber threats indicators as selector terms for conducting upstream surveillance, a technique that involves the use of interception equipment to pull information directly from the switches and cables that make up the Internet. It's likely, however, that the NSA hasn't had a lot of cyber threat information to work with up to this point. Most of that information is held by private companies. Now it appears that Congress may be ready to help the NSA get the information they need to finally crank up their cybersecurity surveillance system. The Senate this week is expected to take up a bill, the Cyber Information Sharing Act, CISA, that would incentivize companies to liberally share cyber threat indicators with air quotes around it, with the Department of Homeland Security by granting them legal immunity from any surveillance laws when they do so. The companies would be allowed to leave their users' personal details and the information they give to the government, 
unless they affirmatively know it is not directly related to a threat, and the DHS would be required to share all of the information with the NSA and other federal agencies. But that's just the beginning of how CISA would massively violate privacy. Any information shared with the government under CISA could be used to turn on the NSA's latent cybersecurity surveillance powers. As revealed by the Snowden documents, cyber threat indicators can be used by the NSA as a selector to target warrantless interception and collection of information from the Internet's backbone. These selectors, things like email addresses, IP addresses, ranges of IP addresses, phone numbers, or strings of computer code, are used as filters to select and extract data from Internet traffic. Importantly, any incidental data that is picked up along the way that is not directly related to the threat, including any and all personal data that is hacked or targeted as part of a cyber threat, can be indefinitely detained by the NSI. And this could be a massive amount of data if a threat involves a company like Google, Bank of America, or AT&T. Section 702 of the FISA Amendment Act, which the government uses to authorize its upstream collection programs, allows the NSA to retain, share, and use information about U.S. persons related to criminal investigations, including but not limited to those involving cybersecurity crimes. The NSA, FBI, and other law enforcement entities are allowed to query the databases that are assembled under Section 702 at will using U.S. person identifiers, e.g. email addresses and phone numbers of people who live in the U.S. to access communications that can be used in criminal investigations. This is the warrantless process that has become known as the backdoor search loophole. All this can be done without a warrant under Section 702 because that law was supposed to only be used to investigate foreign suspects. There's no way to know exactly how much CISA will expand the NSA's ability to collect and query data on Americans' communications, but the leaked documents suggest that the cyber threats shared under CISA will help them add a new major plank to their activities that they have been lobbying for four, four years. The broad legal immunity provisions in CISA should help the NSA get a huge amount of information to input into the system from a wide range of data-rich industries, including insurers, banks, casinos, telecoms, hospitals, airlines, and more that have already announced their support for the bill. So, yeah. Uh, if Go ahead. Yeah, it's... Uh, yeah, well, everybody thought, yeah, when the Patriot Act gets, you know, stopped, you know, and they'll, they'll <laughs> stop all the spying. Nah, they just find another way to do it. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and I think a lot of this stuff where they're making clear legal provisions for stuff now or attempting to is they're pretty sure they're going to get caught with their pants down again. Yes. And they want to look like they've been covered doing all this illegal crap because as vulnerable as we are to them, in some ways their systems are even more vulnerable. We know there have been 605 Chinese um, hacks of our governmental systems this year alone. It's kind of a lot. I mean, not for so far into July, but it's kind of a lot of hacks into government databases. Yeah. So they're not secure at all if they're that easily hackable. Most well, of us know, aren't I've, that I've, easily I've, hackable. I've said it. I've said it before. The only way. The only way to majorly increase the security of your computer system is not have it attached to the internet. Even that's no, but even that's no panacea anymore. 
No, I mean, it, can... but it stops it stops traditional hacking. You have to be far more high tech to get into a closed system because you have to well, get close enough to the closed system where you can eavesdrop on the uh, electromagnetic uh, emissions. Well, I mean, apparently from some of the stuff we've been reading tonight, don't even need that. Just need to know your keystroke footprint, for lack of a better no, no, word. No, no, no. When I say a closed system, I do mean no external connections. Mm. Um, if you really want to keep something secret, that's the only way to do it. You uh-uh. know, computers which have never been and never will be connected to outside communications. That's the where e- you've got to keep your secret stuff. <laughs> the secret, the only really secret stuff anymore is the stuff between your ears. Yeah. Honestly. Or the stuff you put down on paper, but even that's no guarantee. Um, no. Here's a fun one. Federal government gave public housing to billionaires. And this is in the U.S. The federal government gave ta- gave tax-subsidized low-income housing to thousands of families who didn't qualify, including some millionaires, while hundreds of thousands of needy families were left on waiting lists. A new audit from the Department of Housing and Urban Development's Office of the Inspector General found over 25,000 families earned too much to qualify for public housing, costing taxpayers an estimate of $104.4 million in subsidies this year. Most half of the families identified earned, wow, $10,000 or more than HUD's 2014 income limit, according to the audit. Most of these families had earned more than the qualifying amount for more than one year, were not participating in programs that would allow them to reside in public housing and occupied units while many families were waiting for public housing assistance, auditors wrote in a report. Auditors sampled housing authorities in 13 states, Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, and found over 12,425 over-income families living in public housing, while 5,700... Wow. 579,890 families were on waiting lists. At least 1,242 families earning income that exceeded HUD's eligibility limits lived in public housing for over nine years, according to the report. In one case in Oxford, Nebraska, a tenant was approved to live in a subsidized housing for 10 years with a monthly rent of just $300, despite having an annual income of over $65,007 in assets valued at $1.6 million and savings, checking, and retirement accounts, each holding hundreds of thousands of dollars. This condition occurred because HUD regulations require families to meet eligibility income limits only when they are admitted to the public housing program, the report said. The regulations do not limit the length of time that families may reside in public housing. Mark Calbera, Director of Financial Regulation Studies and a think tank and former Deputy Assistant Director for Regulatory Affairs at HUD, said the findings in the report were entirely predictable. There's always some degree of overpayment. HUD has never been very good at tracking changes once you're in, said Mr. Calbria. I'm absolutely convinced there's some level of fraud that people lie about their income when they come in. Even when a family does report income exceeding limits, HUD officials told auditors that they do not want to discourage over-income families from leaving public housing because they do not want to discourage families from seeking stable employment. You don't want to punish people for earning more than their income. More income, sorry. 
there are numbers of studies and it's well accepted that if you're going to lose your subsidized rent somewhere, if you get a job, you're less likely to go out and get a job, Mr. Calvarius said. Fair enough, said Leslie Page, Vice President for Policy and Communications at the Nonpartisan Citizens Against Government Waste. But there has to be a system that moves them in the direction of self-sufficiency. The whole idea is to stabilize people financially so they can have their own home and pay their own rent out of their own income. Hot officials claimed that evicting over-income families would increase the amount of money needed to subsidize the dwellings for needy families. Such changes could result in increased subsidy needs for the program because rents are paid by over-income families, reduce operating subsidies requested by public housing authorities, investigators wrote. HUD claimed that if all over-income families were removed from public housing programs, it would need to request nearly $116.5 million more in public housing operating subsidies. That's a lot of money. The problem is not overemphasized to as many as 25,266 families in need of housing that continue to wait for assistance because over-income families choose to remain in public housing rather than find housing in the unassisted market, auditors wrote. Well, yeah, this is this is one of these problems. They're, they're like, oh, but we, we can't put actual needy people in the houses because that will actually cost money. It's like, yeah, well, that's the point. Right, but here's the thing. If we're forced to pay taxes, mm-hmm. isn't it better that it goes there? Yeah. Then goes... But, of course, I'm in the UK where Margaret Thatcher came up with the wonderful plan of letting Buyer. people buy the public housing. You know, so now what's happened? Now we don't have enough of it. You know, we've talked about this before, and I know I come across as as very, I don't know, right-leaning. And maybe in some ways I am, but for God's sake. You know, you have to have a mixed system. That's the one thing I'm absolutely sure of. You cannot have a wholly one-way system. If you do, you, you end up with some pretty brutal dictators running things. If you want a truly free market system... You can't have a free market and a democracy in a lot of ways. And that comes from just looking back on history. And when you look back at the idea of trickle-down economics, what started in the 80s by Margaret Thatcher and by Ronald Reagan led to this point that most of us are at now, where the problems are we have no digital liberty, we have no way to improve our lots in life, most of us don't have jobs we like or we don't have good jobs or we're underemployed. And there's no way to change that because the money has all, instead of flowing downward at us like we were promised, has all flowed upward and stayed there. So we have a problem. Yes. And it's in how we understand economics. It's not as cut and dried as you think. It isn't all an Austrian system. Some of it is, but... You have to have a mixed system to have a democratic sort of place. And if you want to go completely the other way, um, where it's rampant crony capitalism, and we, we see that in other places, there are brutal regimes that keep people working at their 65 cent per hour jobs, trying to feed their families. Yeah. Um, that's no way to live. So if we're going to have people that, in essence, rule over us, 
that we elect to do our bidding or what have you, uh, we're going to have to change the conversation about money. We're going to have to change the conversation about work. Um, we're going to have to change the conversation about a lot of things because the old answers just don't apply. Um, well, we keep evolving and changing and our systems remain the same. Old answers can apply. What annoyed, well, a lot of economists and mm-hmm. a lot of people paying attention in the UK, right, we had the recession and the Labour government took basically the political hit for it. Because yes, Gordon Brown was a disaster, but <laughs> the, the, the giant financial worldwide crash was not his fault, but mm-hmm. voters are dumb, so they blame the Labour Party. Right. So the Conservatives got in, in a coalition, and they went with austerity. Right, we will get our economy back on its feet by destroying it, um, which never made sense to me. At the same time, you had people going, well, you know, if you borrow more and invest in public services, you know, that'll produce jobs and that'll stimulate growth. But, and, of course, the the free marketers were like, no, 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 we can't do that. that. That'll never work. And you're like, yeah, we already know it works, you dickhead. That's what the UK did after World War Two, mm-hmm. when they first set up the, <laughs> the welfare state. Mm-hmm. They built lots of social housing. They improved railways. They did loads of public projects with borrowed money. And it stimulated the economy. And most of what was borrowed was paid back almost straight away. But no, no, that's not that's not good enough for your modern capitalist. No, well, they they need just the rich people to be making money, well, you not know, anyone else. Here's the thing: when you don't pay your workers enough to buy your product, you're not paying anybody else enough money. They're not making enough money across the board to buy your product. Yeah. You're going to go under. This is a disaster in the making because well, we I refuse mean, to have this this discussion. The rich about and the business orientated no longer think about profit and loss. They just think about numbers. Well, here's they the look thing. at, I have X, their money. They don't think, well... If I want that to grow continuously for longer, I could take some of it and, inv- and and do something worthy over here, like, you know, the great philanthropists used to, mm-hmm. and became astonishingly wealthy on the back of it. No, 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 they just want that, that big number right now. And they I, want I think... it to be bigger than the other guys. And that's all they're thinking of. Well, you know, I, I think... What we understand about the economy um, is different than was understood in the past. I think um, Adam Smith wrote a bunch of really good books about responsible capitalism. Yeah. And how you encourage that. You don't kill capitalism completely. And there's actually going to be a need for government to step in a little bit. You know, look what happened when we lifted all our banking regulations. (laughs) Yeah. Right? So... As much as I despise the idea, if we're going to go on with the system we've got, we've really got to have a serious talk about this stuff. We need to talk about getting regulations out of the hands of the industries that 
need regulation. You yes. know what I mean? They need to have nothing to do with how regulations actually um, are carried out. Yes. Um, it, yeah, I mean, regulatory capture is a major problem. Well, I mean, and There's I have not a really a hard time. Industry that exists now that doesn't suffer from it. Oh, exactly. And um, I try to explain to people like my theory on money comes from Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Um, he understood that actually he had a pretty good idea. We don't really need to actually tax if the government would take off the top of what our GDP is like 10%. What money actually is, is the potential for the population of a given place to create wealth. It is human capital. It's, it's what we can do at our most productive. Yes. That's a com- country's GDP. You don't actually need taxation to make that work. They insist on it, and I don't know why, but it's it's an antiquated idea. Well, yeah, that's, um, that statement stems back to, well, yeah, the, the whole idea of the current way taxes are run, um, basically run back to the Napoleonic War in the UK. Right. Where the British government suddenly needed a lot of money to fight a war. So they came up with this wonderful idea called taxation. <laughs> the modern version of taxation, should I say. Well, yeah. So it's like, oh, everybody should pay a bit. And then once everybody's paid a bit, we'll have this lovely fund. We'll be able to build a nice large army and go and win the war. <laughs> right. And then it worked and then... so well, they decided to keep it going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nothing's ever temporary with government. No. Nothing. So, I mean, all of it's like a big problem that nobody wants to address. And I've, I've got a few ideas, and I think a lot of other people have some really good ideas. Um, but if this is the system we're working with, if we're working with a system that two weeks ago, Congress bought the heads of all the large... Um, like the NSA, the FBI, the CIA. And they wanted to know how many departments were under these people. They bought them in. They had a hearing because they were talking about money and, and how it's spent. And each one of these people said, well, we don't exactly know how many people are under us. So we're going to need about a month or two to get you a list. That means government's your largest employer. It's also a problem. I mean, the whole thing is is like a big, ugly ball of wax that requires a lot of unraveling. But if this is the system we now have, we have to figure out how to work within it and not leave anybody behind. Yes. For me, that's the big thing. Well, one one that always gets me is close the sodding tax loopholes. Mm-hmm. All of them. Now. They keep coming up ex- with excuses. Oh, well, you know, if we close the tax loopholes, all, all the people with money will go abroad. It's like, good, and then you have got a good excuse to go to war with whatever tax haven that, that is taking them in. Because, you know, none of these tax havens seem to have large armed forces. They tend to be <laughs> tiny countries that don't have anything other than these financial institutions. So, yeah, yeah. All the millionaires run off with their money. Then you turn up with your battleships and go hand over the money. (laughs) 
It would work really well, funnily enough. It would work really well, but I mean, I don't even think we have to go to that level. We really do have to have this talk about money and wealth. And um, when Adam Smith wrote Wealth of Nations, he talked about when you have a capitalist society, it creates a surplus. And when he was talking about capitalists, he was talking about, you know, the the women who wore the crazy powdered wigs with the, the fruit and stuff in them. And they spent enormous amounts of money to have dresses and ridiculous shoes made. Um, that created excess money in the coffers to take care of the poor, such yeah. as they did in those times. But before that, there really was no sort of care for the poor. They just kind of starved in the street or existed on charitable donations. Yes. This is the system we have to work with. So you just need to figure out a way to not leave people behind. And there is a way, I'm sure of it. I just think the governments aren't sold on it yet because it requires a change in how they think. Well, it also requires them to not be part of this numbers rat race. <laughs> well, everything is numbers and everything. do it as well. All right. Everything is numbers and everything is data, unfortunately. Um, I, I went completely off the rails. I'm sorry about that. That's okay. Uh, <laughs> I like money, though, so yeah, money winds up being a big portion of the show a lot of times. I think, yeah, Freedom of the Press Foundation sues the Department of Justice over its secret rules for, for spying on journalists. I said I was going to talk about this. The wonderful Freedom of the Press Foundation is now suing the U.S. Justice Department for refusing to reveal its rules and procedures for spying on journalists. The key issue, what rules and oversight exist for the Department of Justice when it comes to spying on journalists? As you may recall, a few years ago, it came out that the DOJ had been using some fairly sneaky tricks to spy on journalists, including falsely telling a court reporter James Rosen was a co-conspirator in order to get access to his emails and phone records. In response to a lot of criticisms, the Department of Justice agreed to revise its rules for when it snoops on journalists. However, there was an important limitation on the new rules, as the New York Times noted at the time. There is no change on how the FBI may obtain reporters calling records via national security letters, which are exempt from the regulation guidelines. A justice spokesman said the device is subject to an extensive oversight regime. Extensive oversight regime, eh? The Freedom of the Press Foundation sought to find out just what kind of extensive oversight there really was, and came up against a brick wall in the form of Black Redaction, Inc. Um, there's a really horribly blotted out letter which doesn't really read too much beyond A and and the. Okay. Um, as the Freedom of the Press Foundation notes, elsewhere in the same report, it appears that the FBI is actually ignoring the recommendations of the expect- Inspector General concerning the situations despite First Amendment interests implicated. As the Foundation notes, the redactions make the details entirely opaque, and the Inspector General's office has made it clear that it disagreed with the redactions saying that revealing the information behind that black ink is important to the public's understanding of how the FBI complies with NSL requirements, given that the foundation is now suing to find out those details. 
The lawsuit specifically requests that the DOJ reveal those documents in their entirety, which include extensive regime rules, guidelines, or infrastructure that oversees the issues, issuance of national security letters or exigent letters to obtain records regarding a member of the media, as well as current procedures that FBI agents must undertake in advance of issuing a national security letter or exigent letter to obtain records regarding any and all members of the media. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the Department of Justice will reply hysterically that revealing this kind of information will put national security at risk and could reveal important law enforcement gathering techniques that will aid those out to harm us or some such crap. Perhaps they'll even toss in a request to dump the entire case for reasons of national security. Just recognize that this is all bullshit. The request here is not for any details that are going to help any criminals get away with anything. All they're asking for is what process the FBI uses to make sure that it's not violating the First Amendment and spying on journalists. If that's something that needs to be kept secret, there can only be one reason. Because the FBI is embarrassed by what it's doing in spying on journalists. Yeah, it comes down to they don't want to let anyone know how they're spying on journalists. Because, well, they know from what happened with Snowden and The Guardian mm-hmm. that some journalists are really quite smart and can get round uh, spy attempts when they know yep. about them. Mm-hmm. And, of course, they're so paranoid about their information that, oh my God, a journalist might be able to conceal stuff from us oh no which is exactly what they're trying to do to the public (laughs) yeah it's exactly like that that's exactly how it is there's it's 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 the hypocrisy well we've got we we keep secrets nobody else should be allowed to yeah but but we should (laughs) well they they certainly seem to think so yeah uh i disagree with that judges keep disagreeing with them on it um Mm. As we oh, yeah. see from all these articles, every time they come up, it keeps oh, going yeah. in front of a judge who goes, release the data. Mm. <sighs> yeah. And then they're like, yeah, well, we've got a ridiculous amount of money, so we're just going to keep going to court. Yeah. People fail to recognize, that's your tax dollars at work. Yes. Okay. So, after publishing secret spy docs, German news site investigated for treason. Marcus, wow, I can't read this poor man's name. Where are you? Um, can you can you see me now? Ah, there. Marcus Bickdahl. Of netpolitik.org. We don't know if we should cry or not. A well-known German political and tech news website has received, and there's a translation letter there, a nearly un unprecedented letter from the German federal public prosecutor saying that two of the site's top editors are being investigated for treason after having published a secret document, secret government documents earlier this year. Netspolitik.org's two earlier articles, one in February and another in April, detailed the, the supposed proposed surveillance expansion of social networks by the Federal Office of the Protection for the Protection of the Constitution. An intelligence agency. It's amazing. Every place names something for exactly the opposite of what it does. We don't know if we should cry or not, the site's editor-in-chief told Ars Technica from Berlin. 
He was specifically named as one of the targets of the investigation, along with Andre Meister, another top editor. A third target named Unknown was also mentioned in the letter. When we leaked some internal documents of the Secret Service of Germany in the spring, documenting their building up a mass surveillance on social networks with lots of new jobs and new capabilities, he added, and this wasn't in public and there wasn't a debate two years after Snowden whether to have more control over Secret Services. Earlier this month, Begdahl wrote in English that the German public radio had reported changes had been filed in relation to charges. I'm sorry, had been filed in relation to the earlier articles, but he was not sure if the charges were against the source of the leak or against his publication. Now, after having received the notification, he has official confirmation that at this stage, it is just an investigation and not a criminal charge yet. The only thing we can do at this moment is raise awareness and say that there's a battle of of press freedom. McDowell added, adding that the last time German journalists were charged with treason was 1962. We see it as an attempt to threaten us and others, he added. Until today, we thought it was a nice summer and we could go to beaches and have fun. But we have to ask ourselves, what would we do if they send us to prison? We don't know. We'll see. According to the BBC, the maximum sentence in Germany for treason is 15 years in prison but a judge can expand this to a longer sentence. The story has been huge news in the German press, and it has crippled the site temporarily. On Twitter, Begdali has pointed readers to the Internet Archive and to pastebin.com for the time being. He also pointed out that the German government gave the site a prize earlier this year as part of its Land of Ideals competition. The site also won the prestigious Gimprez, a German media award in 2014. So it's everywhere. Yep. Well, you see, once the Germans found out just how much spying Britain and the US were getting up to on social media, they wanted to get involved too. It's really not all that interesting. I mean, no. I don't want to see... I don't... You know... I the have to say these were... spies must see an awful lot of pictures of cats. Well, they must see a lot of pictures of cats and a lot of pictures of people's dinners yeah i i see a lot of that on social media so they must see a lot of that too yeah you know a lot of really silly memes i bet that's fun maybe that's (laughs) it all the all these spy agencies they're not actually spying on each other they just want to collect all the memes (laughs) i doubt it but that that sounds a lot less sinister than what i think they want to do um and i think the very last one i wanted to this one this will be the last one after 27 years reporter who exposed Echelon finds vindication in Snowden archive ever since legendary British investigative journalist Duncan Campbell told the world in a 1988 magazine article about Echelon a massive automated surveillance dragnet that indiscriminately intercepted phone and internet data from communications satellites Western intelligence officials have refused to acknowledge that it existed. Despite sporadic continuing press reports, people who complained about the program, which, as Campbell disclosed, automatically searched text-based communications using a dictionary of keywords to flag suspicious content, were routinely dismissed as conspiracy theorists. The only real conspiracy, it turns out, was a conspiracy of silence among the governments that benefited from the program. 
as Campbell writes today in a first person article in the intercept, which is actually a really good read. Uh, and I've got that down at the bottom of my article, the actual link, but that's okay. Um, the archive of the top secret documents provided to journalists by NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden contains a stunning 2005 document that not only confirms Echelon's existence as a system targeting communication satellites, it shows how the program was kept an official secret for so long. It describes how in 2000, European Parliament responded to an increasingly authoritative reports that Echelon was being used to indiscriminately surveil non-military targets, including governments, organizations, and businesses in virtually every corner of the world, by appointing a committee to investigate the program. Members of the committee vowed to get the truth from the NSA. What happened, according to the article in the NSA's own in-house Foreign Affairs Digest, was this. Corporate NSA, FAD, SID, OCG, PAO, and Policy ensured that our interests and our signet partners' interests were protected throughout the ordeal. And ironically, the final report of the EU Commission, there's a link to that, reflected not only that the NSA played by the rules with congressional oversight, but that those characteristics were lacking when the Commission applied its investigatory criteria to the other European nations. The initials in there stand for the NSA's Foreign Affairs Directorate, Signals Intelligence, Office of the General Counsel, and the Public Affairs Office. And then, in what is possibly one of the most memorable lines to come out of the Snowden Archive, the author of the article, a Foreign Affairs Directorate Special Advisor, concluded with this observation. In the final analysis, the pig rule applied when dealing with this tricky matter. Don't wrestle in the mud with pigs, they like it and you both get dirty. Echelon was the precursor to today's worldwide dragnet, which, thanks to Snowden, we now know is carried out by tapping the massive fiber optic cables that encircled the globe. In addition to the satellites that orbit it, it was the collected all of its time. As happens, not every one of Echelon's conspiracy theories turned out to be substantiated. On Jam Echelon Day in October 1999, people around the world sent a huge volume of communications over the internet and over the phone using as many of the presumed Echelon keywords as possible. But the Snowden Archive contained no evidence that the NSA routinely scanned voice communications for keywords back then. That's something they've only gotten good at recently. The story of Campbell's four-decade-long career exposing mass surveillance, including his introduction to the world of the organization known as GCHQ, is a good read. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting stuff. Yeah, the, uh... Yeah, the guy... <laughs> basically, yeah, even a lot of the press were telling the guy four years ago that he'd die. You're... you're you're clutching at straws. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Blah 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 blah. <laughs> and then four, four, four years later, it's like, oh shit, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Some of that stuff is really hard to read. Um, yeah. And you know, um, conspiracy and also theorists. The, e, the EU report link doesn't work. It, it links to huh. the Federation of American Scientists instead. Hmm. Oh my God, the EU are covering up. Or, yeah, just whoever wrote the article got the link wrong. Um, uh, yeah. <sighs> well, 
I mean, you can find pretty much everything from that at, yeah. um, well, of course, the Intercept. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a it's a pretty good article. You know, well, well, when I say to people, GCHQ have been doing this from day one. Yeah, mm-hmm. I really mean it. <laughs> oh, they I know. helped develop I'm... the communications technology. So, yeah, they've been snooping for a long time. Yeah, I mean, I have a really hard time with... I think when people call people conspiracy theorists, it's, it's a pejorative term. Yeah. Um, because conspiracy is not what you think it is. It's it. Me telling you a secret is actually the definition of a conspiracy. And a person who looks at something for long enough and draws the conclusion that two plus two equals four is not always a, a conspiracy nut who should no. be wearing a tinfoil hat. As uncomfortable as the idea makes me feel, um, if it weren't for Snowden and what he released, we would still be saying that all these people are crazy. Your TV's not listening to you. Your smartphone isn't tracking you everywhere you go. The government can't tell who you are by how you type on your keyboard. (laughs) Well... Yeah, you know what? Yeah, they can. So, well, I, I'm 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 not known for being a conspiracy theorist, but yeah, well, I mean, we've talked quite a lot, and yeah, I've known a lot of this shit's been going on my whole life. So yeah, I think most of us know, but it's better to have proof. Once you actually have actual proof, you can have a real discourse. On how things are and the way things are going. Otherwise, you're you're kind of just tilting at windmills. <laughs> that's a problem. So, I guess that's it for tonight. Advert. Advert. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Amoseek.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.